Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. This is Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports Station. Streaming through the Seattle Sports app. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. Here we go now. If Geno Smith and the Seahawks don't reach an agreement on a new deal, which teams could be competing for Geno's services? Both Geno and Drew Locke are unrestricted free agents, meaning the Seahawks have a couple choices. Franchise tag Geno at $32.4 million, re-sign him to a longer deal, or let him walk. You may want to offer Geno $20 million if you're trying to be a penny pincher, but Seattle isn't the only team interested in his services. So, Bump, let's talk about some potential landing spots, and this is really a conversation about the teams you're kind of competing with when it comes to Gino's contract. Gino um, should be one of the most sought out, sought after free agents out there on the market. And I think that he is. I saw several lists where I seen him at number one, number three, number five, uh, number eight. He should be a guy that you're going after if you have a quarterback. If I'm the NFC South, all y'all should be looking at Gino Smith right now. Um, I look at the Carolina Panthers. And I see what they did to us in the run game when they were up here. They got two good running backs over there. They have a star in DJ Moore. He's one of the more low-key stars in his league mm-hmm. that no one really talks about. Four seasons over 1,000 yards. This year he had like 888 or something in seven touchdowns. And you have a run game over there. If I'm the Carolina Panthers, man, I'm taking a good look at Geno Smith and seeing what we can offer. I see him in that quarterback. Frank Reich is now the head coach over there, I believe. He has done a great job. He was with Andrew Luck over there with the Indianapolis Colts. He knows how to deal with a veteran quarterback, and that's half the battle. You want to be coached up by someone who knows what they are doing. The first team I look at is the Carolina Panthers. Now, I've seen the New York Jets. I don't suggest he goes back there and relieve that, relive that trauma that he went through. I say you stay away from the Jets, even though they have a good defense over there. The first team I'm looking at is the Carolina Panthers. All right. Uh, Carolina Panthers have a chance to take the NFC South. Really, any of these teams do. And you mentioned it. That's why they're going to be in the market. Um, The Saints uh, are in a tough cap situation. I don't know how easy it will be for them, but it will be easier for Carolina. Carolina is going to have a chance to draft a quarterback. They could do what maybe the Texans could do or another team might do, which is draft a quarterback and still bring in a guy like Geno as a bridge player. Right. Um, So there's a couple other teams like that. Who else do you have as a potential team? I'm staying in the South and I'm looking at the Atlanta Falcons. They had the third best run game in 2022. Low key. I didn't even realize that 154 yards per game. You got two young receivers, one receiver slash tight end and Kyle Pitts. You got Drake London over there. And then Tyler Algier. Am I saying his name right? Running back for the Atlanta Falcons. Quite a 1,000 yards. No one's really talking about that. Also backed up by Patterson, who has 695 yards on the ground, eight touchdowns. You got a one-two combo over there. The thing that hurts them is this defense. You look at the defense, you go, man, 27th-ranked defense in all the land. What are you going to do with that? He could do something with that. You know why? He just played with a 28th-ranked defense in all the land and made it to the playoffs and got a 9-8 record. I look at the Atlanta Falcons. You play indoors. You're going to be going this 32, 33-year-old body. You got some young talent over there. Let's see what you do. But this team right here, is honestly I think it's probably the best fit for my mans and I'm looking at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers now there's rumors going around that Canales is interviewing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to be the offensive coordinator he's also met with the Ravens I'll talk about that in four down territory Canales is currently the quarterback coach for the Seahawks Canales quarterback coach for the uh, for the Seahawks if he goes over there 
Why wouldn't Geno be interested? You got your quarterback coach who's been with you the last couple years. He's probably going to bring aspects of that Shane Waldron offense over there. You're going to play in sunny Florida where it's warm all the time. You have weapons. Mike Evans is signed until 2025. Godwin is signed until 2025. You got two decent tight ends over there in Bray and Otten. I'm looking at that situation and saying, man, we can just run this back with the Shane Waldron office. Now, Canales is going to have different aspects as well. Where they do need help is in the run game, worse than the league, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But it's also because Leftwich was calling 75 pass plays a game. Yeah. If Canales were to go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, all right, he interviews, he kills it, he accepts that position. If the Hawks do not sign Geno, I would not rule out the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, man. Canales could convince him, man, let's run this thing back. Mm-hmm. We know what to do over here. There's weapons. Tampa Bay just became extremely attractive to me if I'm Geno Smith. A lot of these guys also have great draft capital, right? So you can quickly improve the areas where they're floundering. I'm not saying take a running back like high in the first round. But the Carolina Panthers are picking at number nine overall. They have a chance to, you know, go add defensively. They could get their quarterback again, get a young quarterback, have them uh, learn behind uh, learn behind Geno. The Atlanta Falcons, who do need defensive help, like you said, they're at pick number eight. They can go get defensive help that can help out immediately, and then Geno can help their offense um you have the uh, tampa bay buccaneers who aren't going to be in the top but again that's not really where you're going to be drafting a running back anyway so so they can still get that help in the second round of the draft right that's exactly where seattle found ken walker Mm -hmm. i think what i find most interesting so far about the names that you have do you have more names No, that's it. Okay. I think what I find most interesting so far about this is the way that the conversation is always framed around Gino, because we're here in Seattle, is do we in Seattle want Gino or not? Instead Mm -hmm. of recognizing this has to be a mutual decision, Gino is an unrestricted free agent, as is Drew Locke for that matter. These guys are not under contract. Once mid-March hits and the new league year calendar starts... They have to also decide where they're signing. And this idea that Seattle is the only team that will want either of these guys is false. The idea that Seattle uh, is the only team willing to offer even $25 million or $30 million to Geno is also false. And the idea that Seattle is the only place where Geno can find success, I think, is false. I mean, you mentioned that the place that you see him potentially finding a lot of success is with Tampa Bay, especially if they can get a run game going. Yeah, it's all about fit, respect, and... Um ambition right what what do you think you can do with this team and I think Gino looks at a lot of teams that need a quarterback and say I can do something with that you can even look at the Las Vegas Raiders what if Aaron Rodgers doesn't go to the Las mm-hmm. Vegas Raiders and Gino looks over there and say look man they got a run game got a pass game got to work on that defense I'm used to working with a defense that's subpar but I can do something there yep. that's a great point you got to realize that man it takes two to tango if the Hawks are coming in with a disrespectful offer. Geno comes in too high. They can't meet in the middle. They might just say it's better off to go our separate ways. That's a true possibility. We're just talking about this to paint a picture of what free agency is. It's not just up to the Seahawks to decide if they want Geno Smith or not. It's up to Geno, and I'm and he's going to do this, and I hope that he does this. You take your time, and you look all across mm-hmm. this league. Now, people are going to say, he owes the Seahawks. We were loyal to him. We did this, did that. Yeah, you sure did. And Geno provided you a service as well that took you to 9-8 and and made the Pro Bowl. And some of y'all ain't grateful for it, okay? You don't have to be grateful. You want to let him walk, you can let him walk. There's his options. And Geno is going to have options because he's he showed what he can do last year. And he's at that price point to where he's not going to break the bank for any team. Unless you're in New Orleans, which is a whole different type of cap situation. He's not going to break the bank and he showed that he can do it. 
So uh, take a take a look around the league and, and imagine a life without Geno. Imagine it. And you tell me how you feel. Well, and the thing is, I think in Seattle, because as much trash as people want to talk about Russell Wilson now that he's gone, recognizing that essentially in the second half of 2020, he started looking like he was on a decline. Prior to that, Russell Wilson, some people might say he was overrated, was still a great starter. He was a great starting quarterback. I think the vast majority of NFL critics and analysts would pit him at least, at least in the top 10. Many would put him in the top five of passers for a good chunk of his tenure here in Seattle. I think that maybe the assumption that some people have is like every other team has a starter they love. And in Seattle, you may think like, well, we know what it was like to have a franchise quarterback. I only want to shell out for a young franchise quarterback who can play on a rookie deal. Not recognizing that there are many other teams around the NFL that are like, you know what, we'll take Geno. I will take that kind of starter. Like, we don't have Patrick Mahomes. We don't have Josh Allen. We don't have Joe Burrow. We don't have Trevor Lawrence. Uh, We don't have Aaron Rodgers. Like, we are willing to pay for that kind of quarterback um, because we think our team is good enough to go to a Super Bowl, and that's the missing piece that could take us there, right? I mean, that's what the Rams did with Matthew Stafford. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people would have looked at Matthew Stafford and said, that guy will definitively win you a Super Bowl. There were doubts around him. And then the Rams traded for him and had enough pieces that he was the difference they needed. I mean, would you say that Matthew Stafford is as good as Tom Brady, as good as Patrick Mahomes, as good as these guys that we think of when we think of the guy that makes the difference? I don't think a lot of people would think that. No, I don't think so. And I I think I'm looking at the Houston Texans and the Indianapolis Colts. The Colts had Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck. Ever since then, it's been a revolving door when it comes to quarterbacks. It's hard to find one. Look at the Houston Texans. The last time they were really good is when Schwab was over there and he was the quarterback. They've been searching for a very long time for a quarterback. Look at the Pittsburgh Steelers, who was held down by Ben Roethlisberger for a long time. They're banking on two-glove Kenny Pickett. We'll see what happens there. It's just really hard to find a quarterback. And when you're in a position of leverage, and I think people understand that too, Geno has a lot of leverage in this situation. Um, yes, he's a loyal dude. I think he's going to sit down and talk to the Seahawks. But there are other teams who are going to make some solid offers. And I, I, I'm going to go out and say there's going to be a team that makes a better offer than the Seahawks. And that's when you rely on your relationships and him knowing the offense and DK and Lockett and all these guys and saying, I want to run this back. It's just hard to find a franchise quarterback. And Geno has all the leverage in this situation because he's a free agent, because he's coming off a Pro Bowl. And I'm interested. I wish that we had insight on who he's talking to and their offers um, just to enlighten us about what this process is like. When it's all said and done, maybe he sits down and he, and he talks about it. But at this point, um, there are guys talking, talking to him and talking for him and trying to sell this man. And a lot of times, I think Gino's in a spot right now where he doesn't need to be sold. They're looking at film and saying, we could use this guy. And uh, I think the Seahawks could use him and mm-hmm. should sign him because, you know, these teams are in his DMs right now. I was looking back at a lot of Gino tape. The other night, last night, I was just thinking back on Geno's 2022 season. So I went back and looked at a ton of highlights, even going all the way back to week one against Denver, which uh, he didn't have stats that jumped off the page. I feel like he had less than 200 yards passing and uh, maybe only uh, one or two touchdowns. Yeah, he's 195, two touchdowns. But you watch plays in that game and you think like, this isn't just a guy that's dropping back and making a quick, easy pass because the play is designed well. This is a guy like on his touchdown to Will Disley who steps back out of the pocket, evades pressure, looks Russell Wilson-esque, finds Disley with a great shot. Disley goes into the end zone, obviously, and that's the first touchdown of the season for Seattle, first touchdown in that game. Beautiful throw, back shoulder. Beautiful. And I just think that, you know, we look at the stats and we think, okay, I say we, Royal we. Gino didn't have a game with over 400 yards. He didn't have a game with four touchdowns. I think that 
simplifying his season does a disservice to some of the plays that he made in the year, especially when you consider the plays he made in losses that were lost not because of the offense and not because of Geno. One of his best games was against New Orleans. He also uh, had a great game uh, against Detroit, uh, excuse me, um, against the Rams, right? Like you, you look at some of the things that he had and <laughs> you have uh, three touchdown games three times and two of them were in losses to New Orleans and Carolina. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I think that we simplify Geno's season into like, I'm only paying you if your stats blow me away. And that's just not how the league works. Yeah, it's not how it works. And Geno is a result of a lot of things. There's someone saying, you guys make the assumption that Geno is the only reason why they made the playoffs. False. We have never in False. our lives on air <laughs> ever said that. Okay, we're saying Geno is a key factor into this. That's what we're saying. And I think you got to look at Geno's situation and you got to say he did what was asked of him. I don't think they asked him to throw for 400 yards. I don't think Shane Waldron ever walked into a meeting and said, Geno, for us to win this, man, we need 403 or four touchdowns. No. And, and you have those candid conversations. I guarantee you Shane Waldron walked into the situation and said, look, we need you to take care of the ball this week. We can't afford more than one. Like you, you, well, I want you to push the ball down the field a little bit more, but let's be smart about it. That was Geno's assignment was to be smart with the football. Is he um, – as he, is he perfect? No, of course he's not perfect, right? Um, but that was his assignment. Take care of the football and let's run it. He's a factor into all of this. Now, you know what was also a huge factor? Ken Walker getting going after Rashad Penny goes down. DK Metcalf going for 1,000 yards. Lockie going for four straight seasons for 1,000 yards. What, first time since Steve Largent. Those are factors. Um, Jenna Newells, who's starting the season off hot and being NFC Defensive Player of the Week. Will Disley getting Special Teams Player of the Week, right? Those are factors we're saying. But when you slice the pie up, you got to look at the QB. If the QB isn't taking a bigger portion of the pie, unless we're talking about the Baltimore Ravens, the Buccaneers, all these teams with great defenses, then you're probably not going to have a lot of success. Mm-hmm. So, um I like Geno's piece of pie. And also, um, man, how did I sleep on Deshaun Watson over there with Houston? Schaub was had some good years. Obviously, Watson had some good years with Houston as well. All right. This hour of Bump and Stacey is brought to you by Advanced Hair Restoration. Let's get to Four Down Territory. This, this is Four Down Territory. Going inside the game with former Seahawks and Coug wide receiver Michael Bumpus. First down, we constantly look to see which team has an edge and where. So did the Chiefs have a mental edge over the Eagles? If so, how and why? Man, I've been looking. That's that's all we do during the Super Bowl, right? We look for edges, right? Is Pat Mahomes healthy? What's going to happen? So then I started to look. I go, all right, which team has the most players with recent Super Bowl experience. The Chiefs have 12 of those guys who was on the team back in the day when they won a Super Bowl. The most important two, in my opinion, of course, is Mahomes to Kelsey. In that Super Bowl, Mahomes had, what, 26-42, 268, two touchdowns, but two interceptions as well. Kelsey had six for 43 and one touchdown. Defensively, he had Frank Clark. He had a sack. Chris Jones. What do you think the biggest stat for Chris Jones was in that Super Bowl? A tackle for loss. Passes defended. No! 
He had three passes defended. He didn't have any sacks, all right? But that means that just tells me I don't remember the game specifically. Yeah. It tells me that they're running screens and he was just all he's over. He's so good. It feels dumb to say a defensive player of the year nominee is underrated, but he's underrated. Yeah, he's underrated for sure. We don't talk about him enough. On the other side, the Eagles have seven players who were on the team back in the day in 2017 when they won the Super Bowl. Two, two of those guys are kicker and a long snapper, so I don't, I don't really pay too much attention to them. Brandon Graham had a sack and then Fletcher had two QB hits. I'm just saying, if we're going off of that, the edge goes to the Chiefs just because they have more guys with experience. If you break down all the guys they have on their roster with just uh, Super Bowl experience in general, there's 30 guys over there who have played in the Super Bowl, which is crazy. So on paper, the edge goes to the Chiefs. But I also think, man, sometimes what you don't know don't hurt you. So these guys, these Eagles coming into this game that don't have that experience can go in and play free. You're going to feel the pressure. But sometimes, because you've never been in that situation, you don't understand the severity. But that's hard to say when you're playing for a Super Bowl. On paper, as Chiefs. Second down. Seahawks quarterback coach Dave Canales had an interview with the Ravens and uh, a rumored meeting with the Buccaneers in hopes to become offensive coordinator for, for that team. Do you feel he's ready for a shot? At calling the shots, calling those plays. Man, the more I looked into Canales, the more I liked the dude. He went to Carson High School, which is around where I grew up. He went to El Camino College. Some of my boys went to that college. I'm like, okay, I, there's a reason why I was vibing with you. He's worked his way up. He's been with the Seahawks since 2010. He's been a QB coach, a wide receiver coach, and a pass game coordinator. All right, he was there for the Legion of Boom. He's worked under three offensive coordinators, and he's worked with quarterback, um, uh, excuse me, Pro Bowl quarterbacks. This dude's ready to go. It's now or never. All he has to do now is just impress the owners and the GMs when he, get, when he gets in there. He's taking the long road. A lot of guys just shoot up to opportunities to be offensive coordinators. Maybe it's their connection. Maybe it's their last name. Canales has done this the long way, man. He's been loyal. He's been groomed. I think this dude is ready to go. If he goes to Tampa Bay, I am telling you, they're going to call Geno Smith, and they're going to try to sell him mm-hmm. on that situation. Canales is ready. I hope he gets a job. I'm kind of nervous because I would like to see Gino here. I'm kind of nervous about that. Third down. Some in the league have floated around the thought of neutral sites for the NFL Conference Championship games. Falcons owner Arthur Blank made it clear he's not a fan of neutral sites. Are you for or against them? I'm against it. One of the reasons why I'm against it is because this is just a play by the NFL to make more money. Something tells me they're going to make more money if they go to neutral sites. You can charge for this. You can charge for that. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's like, why? this is why you don't sit guys in week 17 and 18 of the NFL season when you have a number one seed on the line because you want home field advantage all the way through. It's so hard to win in the NFL. So now you're telling me this is my hunch. I don't have any data behind this. You're telling me out of greed you're going to want to move the, the championship game to a neutral site. You already got the Super Bowl. Make all your money there, NFL. You make billions of dollars a year. These guys have earned the right to play a home championship game in front of their fans. I'm against this. This is just one of the things that irks me about the NFL. They're always looking for a way to nickel and dime you or whatnot. And I might be wrong. I'm just going off of assumptions. But I guarantee you a lot of y'all listening out there know that or feel that that probably has something to do with it. Well, and think of how mad you guys would be. The Seahawks haven't been to an NFC conference game since 2015, the 2015 calendar year, 2014 season, when they played the Packers at what was then CenturyLink. You're telling me, like, think of how mad you would be if the Seahawks finally got back to the conference championship game and it was at, I don't know, SoFi. <laughs> right, and you're the number one seed, right. or the number two seed, and it's it's you can't even go to your home stadium to watch it. That's the entire point. I agree with you, Bump. Fourth down. <laughs> NFL 
NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell says the refs are performing at an all-time high this year. Our colleague Brock Heward says he agrees. Is officiating the best it's ever been in the NFL? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I do think it is. I think if you took referees, Mike, from the 70s and the 80s, and you dressed them in these little sleeker, more hip outfits today, and say, hey, here you go, head linesman, here you go, umpire, and, and they ran on that field to go officiate, I think they'd run right off the field and go, this is this is crazy. I <laughs> cannot believe how fast this is. How am I supposed to see these things happen in real time? So, no, the, these are the best of the best. Something tells me you don't agree with Brock. No, I don't agree with Brock. I understand his angle. He's saying, man, you take old Bobby Joe from 1972 when they're playing the Steelers versus whoever, you throw him in this game, of course it's going to overwhelm him. The game is about 40-something years past that. Everything is bigger, faster, and stronger. So they were refing the game well back then according to their rules, and I think the referees do the best that they can uh, in today's game according to their rules. The reason why I think it could be better. Is it the best it's ever been? It better be. Football is the best it's ever been. Refing is the best it's ever been. But it could be better, and I think that we need to hold them accountable more. And how could it be better? Use all of your resources. You have cameras. You got angles. You got technology. Like Save these dudes. The reason why we're so upset with these guys is because we see it clear as day. If we can see it clear as day, a penalty, a false start, a holding or whatnot, mm-hmm. and we're sitting at home, and we're not even zoomed in and we're seeing it, use the same technology to make sure these guys are held accountable and are protected the nfl does enough to protect these guys protect them even more there was a a a holding on orlando brown during the same play where pat mahomes gets pushed out of bounds clear as day but they don't get it right now i'm not saying that you let technology take over the game but when you get down to the fourth quarter two minutes three minutes left it's a close game you want to be as efficient as possible just aid these referees are they doing a good job i think they do the best they can i think there are some garbage referees out there too just mm-hmm. like there's some garbage football players there's mm-hmm. garbage people in all uh, all types of positions garbage everywhere garbage everywhere garbage at your job you might be garbage i'm just saying help these dudes use the technology it is not that dang hard you protect them like they're your child hold them accountable help them out that's all i got Washington Commanders owner Dan Snyder could be open to selling his team, but wait until you hear how much he's asking for it. That's next. This is The Timeline with Bump and Stacy, Brought to you by 1-800-DUIOA. All right, today is the NBA trade deadline. Here's a quick roundup of some of the biggest moves, at least for right now. You guys saw this one late last night. Kevin Durant dealt to the Suns. Uh, Matisse Thibel dealt to the Blazers today. Jalen McDaniels going to the 76ers. And just now, Pat Bev dealt to Orlando. Bump, I'm so sorry. The Lakers uh, got Mo Bamba. Deuces. <laughs> I know you were so excited when the Lakers got him. Appreciate your services. I will not pretend like um, you are not a NBA pro. You made a nice career out of what you do, but what you do is isn't effective anymore. Uh, he's just not as effective as he used to be. He used to be at least able to spot up for a three pointer. He can't even do that. He's the worst three point shooting player in the NBA, and I'm How not exaggerating. You? In How the NBA, you? so if you can't shoot threes, you can't play defense. Thank you. Bump. We know Appreciate your services, Pat Bev. I can go back to not liking you, not supporting you. Bump, we know this isn't easy. <laughs> you know what Pat Bev is looking forward to is hating what Russell Westbrook again because they're not teammates anymore. <laughs> this is tough. It's a tough day for Nets fans with KD, for, for Lakers fans with Pat Bev. 
Hey. 76ers fans might be kind of sad about Matisse Thibel, who was a fan favorite, but hey, they got Jalen McDaniels, so. Yeah, you good. Okay, it's okay. All right, so uh, again, trade deadline is today. Could be more moves, but those are the biggest ones you need to know about. Uh, next story here in the timeline, I teased it heading into this segment. Front Office Sports is reporting that Commander's owner, Dan Snyder, could be willing to sell his team, but the starting bid, a cool $7 billion. Um that would be the most for uh, any <laughs> any NFL team. The highest offer through the first rounds of bids uh, was six point three billion. He's again looking for seven. I feel like I don't know. Um, some uh, prognostications have the Commanders fetching maybe as much as eight billion. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, the Broncos were uh, sold. Um, it would be 1.6 billion more than the Denver Broncos sold for last year. So again, it's like it's not jumping to such an extent that it's unfathom unfathomable. I think it's just, I th- I think he's maybe not too keen on selling it. So the offer is pretty ridiculous. No, nah, this is what happened. This is business for you. You put it out on the market. You see what what the bites are, what the nibbles are. You get that thing appraised again. You go, hold up. You know what? I'm gonna take that back. I'm gonna sit on this for a little bit and, and see what happens, and then try to reevaluate. He wouldn't put that number out there if he didn't feel he can get anywhere near that. I mean, say what you want about Dan Snyder and that family; they're rich for a reason. Yes, he didn't inherit a lot of this, but to think that he didn't learn anything along the way would be ridiculous. Um, might not be a good person. Uh, did inherit a lot of money in a good situation, but there's enough people around him. I mean, he ha- he has enough resources to say, okay, I can get a bit more. Let's reevaluate this whole deal. How much of bad teams is because of owners? Like, you know how there are some franchises that are just bad for decades and decades, and it's all in one family, and after a while you think, God, you've had five GMs, you've had seven head coaches, you've had, you know, eight different quarterbacks, you've had complete regime turnovers with coaches. Are you talking about the Cowboys? Man, it could be <laughs> it could be the Cowboys Shucks. who have had a great quarterback, but they have, no matter who the head coach is, you have Jerry Jones uh, breathing down your neck smelling like bourbon, and then you have uh, Washington, a team that has had great players, right? Right. And they've never, they have done things, like they've been successful before, um, but they haven't in many, many years, right? Then you have, uh, I mean, shoot, you could throw the Detroit Lions in here. I, I know that their ownership isn't unpopular per se, but if you look at franchises that struggle for extended periods of time, it's hard not to look at the owner, but what kind of impact does the owner have on a franchise's success? A big impact. I feel like the more involved an owner is, the harder it is to really um, to be successful because the owner isn't a football player. The owner isn't a coach. The owner isn't breaking down film, X's and O's, personnel-wise. No, they don't do that. Now, there are some who are involved. You look at Jerry Jones, and I'm not saying all owners just sit back and, and watch the show and let it unfold. They don't know football, but that's why you pay people to do their jobs. You pay people that you trust, and the owner is responsible for hiring these people. So if you're looking at a team that doesn't have a great head coach for years, doesn't have a great quarterback, you got to look at ownership and say, all right, it starts and ends with you. Yes, there are people under you who are doing your job, just like we're looking at Russell Wilson in a charity, it starts and ends with you, homie. Like you, you, you hire people to do their jobs. They don't do it well. It falls on you. I think ownership has a big deal to do with that, and especially the culture, man. I mean, mm-hmm. culture. I don't think people understand how important that is. And Dan Snyder has done a horrible job with that culture. Great analogy. Next up here in the timeline on Wednesday night, UConn women's basketball team lost consecutive games for the first time in thirty years. <laughs> 
That's crazy. The Damn last it. time they lost two straight was in 1993. Curtis, what year were you born? Uh, 91. In 1993, when Curtis was two, they lost the Big East, Big East Championship game and then lost in the first round of the NCAA tournament. So they were still, like, good even when they lost two straight. How's it feel knowing that the last time that happened, though, was when you are Willa's age? Yeah. <laughs> She'll be two in May. Uh, boy, they they just win. Dominant. At everything. And in and, and and yeah, and in a dominant fashion too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to see a run like this that they've been on uh, for now three decades. I don't think we're ever going to see this in any sport anywhere. No, I don't think so. What nah. are some of the best college dynasties you guys can think of? UCLA basketball in the seventies, yeah, in the sixties and seventies, yeah. They won, I think. 10 championships in that run. When was Duke at its very best for the extended period of time? Because they've always been good. Early 90s. Early 90s. They, went, they went back to back. Yeah. Early 2000s. Yeah. They go in their spurts. Yeah. They'll be good for our elite elite for three or four years, and then they move on. How long does it count? How long does it have to be? Like Pete Carroll almost did the trifecta with USC football, but that wasn't yeah, an especially I mean, long tenure. Football, you've got, I think, a little more... Uh, bigger title windows because like oh, Alabama, I think Alabama currently yeah. is Penn in State one of the better ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Florida State in the '90s, they were always in the yeah. national championship game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got guys who are guaranteed there for at least three years. You can build around that. NBA or excuse me, men's basketball is one and done, son. What's the best dynasty ever, regardless of sport, regardless of level? It might be UConn. Women's yeah, might be UConn or the Celtics. Back in the 60s. Yeah. They won eight straight. Unbelievable. All right. Next story here in the timeline. Former Seahawk and current Sea Dragons wide receiver Josh Gordon joined Wyman and Bob yesterday. Uh, He talked about a lot, starting by uh, explaining why he's still pursuing a career in football. There's a practicality of it for me right now. I mean, I love the game for sure. You know, absolutely. Uh, And then the love only gets you so far. And then beyond past that, you know, it's just reality. So, I mean... Uh, at my age, I'm still able to do it, and I'm blessed to do it. So it makes the most sense to just go out there uh, and give it 100, 110% and, uh, until until I can't anymore. You know? I've been blessed with this opportunity, and I hope to make the most of it here in Seattle again. All right, Josh Gordon also asked whether or not he thinks he's going to get another shot at the NFL. You know, I got the platform that I got, and I'll be able to just, uh, I guess, use it. Use it to its fullest extent, you know, whether it's in the league or out of the league. You know, it's just based upon... A necessity, you know, an availability. And if I'm available and they need me, you know, um, they, maybe they give me a call. A lot to cover here, Bump. I mean, whether it's understanding how hard it is to walk away uh, or leave forever a sport that you've loved and played your whole life, uh, whether it's wondering whether Josh Gordon could be back in the NFL ever again. I mean, what do you think about either of these? I think if you have the desire and you're still getting opportunities, you have to do it. Because once you're done, you can't you can't turn back time. Once those knees start popping and them shoulders hurting, that back is all gone. It is gone forever. So if you're healthy, you go ahead and do it. I'm looking at Josh Gordon. He's only played one, two complete seasons. In 2012, he played 16. Then he played 14 in 2013. Then 5, then 5, then 12, then 1, 11, 11, 6, 5, 12, and 2. 77 games over roughly 10 years. So he's got some football left in him. And if he has the opportunity, you go out and do it. And I think the XFL is the perfect spot for guys like Josh Gordon and guys trying to crack the league again. Um, my thing is, 
Does the XFL have the same substance abuse policies that the NFL has? Because we know what he got in trouble for back yes. in the day, which he wouldn't get in trouble for now. Yes. Um, my hope is that um, he's found peace with that and that the XFL mirrors what the NFL is doing. I could see that. I could see that happening. Uh, wrapping things up here uh, very quickly is um, a listener, Seth in Fresno, uh, Bump. We were joking about uh, you saying goodbye to your favorite Lakers player, mm. uh, Pat Bev, and you said, I'm not going to miss that guy at all. Seth says, actually, Bump, Bev was leading the Lakers backcourt this year in three-point percentage. Do you want to recant uh, any of your statement at all about that? Not at all. Who's the backcourt? Court him and Russell Westbrook. Both of y'all deuces. Dennis Schroeder, baby. Schroeder. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm good, man. Okay, just I'm making good. sure. Just making sure. Uh, the latest <laughs> from Jerry DePoto coming your way next. Bumpin' Stacy. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On Seattle's Sports Station. Here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Rost. The latest from Jerry DePoto. Let's get to it. The Mariners president of baseball operations spoke with Brock and Salk earlier this morning. Pitchers and catchers report on Wednesday. Spring training right around the corner, you guys. Uh, all other players report the following Tuesday. Players who are participating in the base, uh, World Baseball Classic, though, will need to report before then. So not long now until we get some news and updates on some of your favorite players. We do have a few from Jerry DePoto, though. Let's start with this one. Um, Bump, when we were talking about the two things we were most excited about and two things we were most nervous about when it came to spring training, I was surprised by your answer. I mean, I I said Julio because I was boring. And you said, I would love a bounce back from Bob, uh, from Robbie Ray. Mm-hmm. Like, I would just, I am most excited to see a guy who you thought did a great job during the season and left kind of a bad taste get a chance to bounce back. Here's what Jerry DePoto had to say about Robbie. If you spend any time around Robbie Ray, and, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about teams needs you know teams that have they have a toughness to them Robbie is like the he is central to our team's toughness his his resilience is he is about as down the middle even keel don't get too high don't get too low as it gets and you know my guess is Robbie's going to come in actually he's already in Peoria and throwing bullpens he's going to come in and shape he's going to come in and do the things that Robbie does and you know, I think we'll have, you know, year two for Robbie is going to be better than year one because now he, he understands the environment. And he's adaptive. That part's important. But what do you think he means by Robbie bringing toughness? I mean, we don't know. This is all conjecture. This is toughness. This is, and I think this is different in baseball than football. Too, How obviously. does a pitcher bring toughness to the game? Uh, right. Um, maybe it's his demeanor, his approach. Um, I don't accountability. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't really see how. A pitcher brings toughness to it. I think maybe that it's more in in training. You know, when they're when they're lifting together, when they're practicing, interactions. You know, how you present yourself as a professional. Um, You guys text in. Let me know. Right? How does a pitcher bring toughness? I asked Bump and put him on the spot because I genuinely didn't know. I don't know either. (laughs) Like, what does it mean, Jerry? What is the toughness Robbie brings? It's not to say he's not tough, but. I'd be curious he has a know. reason. He has There's a reason. A reason. Why he said that, well, and you, when you think of like the chemistry that makes up a good team, you can't have too much of one thing. You can't have too much of a fun team, right? You can't have a team yeah. that's all fun and laughs and giggles and like isn't everything great. Like you need a team sometimes that like you lose ten straight and you have a guy that's like, all right, everyone, listen up. 
This Look, is what needs. You need to a good mix of things. Yeah, you need, you need the happy guy. You need the even kill. You need the uh, the too serious at times guy. You need it all. All right, let's get to Julio. This one specifically with Julio hitting leadoff. Jerry's asked, "Well, how long are you going to let Julio hit leadoff?" Uh, for as long as he wants to. There's <laughs> a. You know, it's 17 years, if I had to, to plug one single number. But, I mean, truly, it's it, some of what we talked about moments ago about the, the, the way speed has a chance to, to change in the game or, or the implementation of speed on the bases in the years to come might shift us back, you know, toward what, uh, what leadoff hitters look like 25, 35, 40 years ago. But right now, leadoff hitters, oftentimes, they're just your best hitters. And, you know, get them the extra at bat, hit them at the top of the order. You know, who's our best guy at getting on base? Probably Julio. I think there's that traditional logic of you let the guys that have power, your best hitters, you know, bat cleanup, obviously. I love Julio at leadoff. Mm -hmm. I love it, too. He sets the tone. He's a tone setter. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He comes out there with that confidence. And you feel like it's rare that I watch any sport and I feel like a certain player is going to be successful every time I see him. Mm. You know, there's always a bit of nervousness or, oh, we'll see if he gets it done. When Julio's at the plate, I just believe that he's going to get it done every single time. And I think that said something when he can go out there every game and set the tone. We got some responses for what makes Robbie Ray tough. And there's a there's a good one in there. He goes, um, Robbie Ray doesn't let things get to him. That's toughness. That's mental toughness. I feel that. So thank you for uh, for that point of view because I, I didn't know what he was talking about, but I, I understand that. But, yeah, Julio, man, he's just – he's the tone setter. He's the he's the confidence. He he uh, exudes that in everything that he does. So why not let him lead off? The 509 says maybe because Ray screams before every pitch. That is tough. That's, that's tough to do. I mean, do. if you want to talk about someone that's tough, if you're going, ah, while you're throwing a ball at me, like, yeah, I'm, I'm scared. Uh, all right, let's get to JP, a player that uh, I'm very curious about this year. The team has passed over many, many big-name shortstops over two consecutive periods of free agency to stick with JP. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those shortstops didn't work out with the, their new teams. Some of those shortstops got 11-year contracts that the Mariners understandably didn't do, but it doesn't mean that they don't still need to see improvement from JP and kind of make this addition worth it in the long term. Here's what Jerry says JP has been working on this offseason. 162 games a year is a really rough job. And you know, by the second half, there was just, he had no base. You know, his, his legs were, weren't under him. You could see the, how labored it was from time to time, just moving side to side or coming on and off the field. And and I think he spent a ton of his off season making sure that that he is in that he's as strong as he can be to try to avoid that outcome. And you know, the JP has a good swing. He's got a good eye. He swings at the right pitches. I don't think he's ever going to be a guy who hits twenty twenty five homers, but he is a guy that gets on base, should spray his doubles, and uses the field to hit. What kind of season would you love to see from JP? A season where he looks healthy for the majority of it, guys break down eventually. That's just the game. Where um, I feel the same confidence in his glove that I felt a couple years ago in that he finishes the way that he started. When he started the season last year, man, we felt good about JP. But eventually you start to break down. And you mentioned, I think I heard him mention like his side-to-side movements or whatnot. At shortstop, man, you are active. If you're not a catcher or a pitcher, shortstop, you are putting in work. Your lateral movements, your abductors, your adductors, you're growing. So I think JP is understanding what his body needs to make it through a season and to remain consistent. 
I think that was his focus this this offseason. Yeah. And that's what I'm looking forward to seeing. Just be the consistent guy. You mentioned he's not going to hit 20, 25 bombs, but he's going to get on base. He's going to have a solid glove, and he's going to be a leader. All right. You can hear the rest of Jer- Jerry DePoto's interview on the Brock and Salk podcast. He joins them every single Thursday at 830. Lots more to hear from Jerry DePoto. He talks about whether spring training will f- feel different this year after they break the drought and what he's most looking forward to. Says a lot about the pitch clock, so make sure you go check that out. All right. We're switching gears here. We're talking football with a guest we are very excited about. It is a wide receiver heavy show. It's not just Michael Bumpus. It's not just Tyler Lockett. It's Keyshawn Johnson. He joins us next.